Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. Romans chapter 8, meet me at the top. We have been continuing to scale the heights of Romans chapter 8 in the last two months. Again, one of the highest mountain peaks in the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. An incredible message of what it looks like to have the Spirit of God and the power of God in and through our lives. And I would ask you to find your copy of God's Word, either a Bible or a device of some kind, and uh, join us in Romans chapter 8. You know, as I was thinking about this message this week, I thought a lot about the guy who wrote Romans chapter 8, and really the entire book of Romans for that matter, a guy named Paul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. Uh, You know, interesting guy. Probably there's never been a more spirit-filled man or woman to walk the earth than the Apostle Paul. Here's something interesting about this guy. So most scholars agree that he was probably in his early 60s when he wrote uh, this book to the Romans, this letter to the Romans. Uh, You know, Paul had more lives than a cat. I mean, he, he faced death on a regular basis and, and always lived to tell the tale. Uh, so he was no stranger to this. But here he is in his early 60s. He's been rode hard and hung up wet for Jesus, in a sense, time and time again. Most people would say, you know, it's probably time to taper things off a little bit. I need to take it easy. And yet here's a guy who's talking to the Romans about going to Spain and planting churches. Now listen, you don't get to that point unless you know for certain that God is for you and that the Spirit of God is in you in a powerful, powerful way. That's who he was. Or as the old country preacher has described the Apostle Paul in these words, he said, he never let up, gave up, or shut up until he was taken up. He was relentless in his pursuit of Jesus, and we see that in Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to look at verses 31 to 39. I'm going to read from the screen here. You can follow along. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. And we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quote from Psalm 44, verse 22. No, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The words of a man in whom the power of God was living and active, and a man who could obviously and strongly and boldly say, God is for us. Who can be against us? Now, how did he know all those things? Well, I'm going to share some things with you this morning straight from the Scripture, the first of which is this. I simply want you to consider the overwhelming evidence. Okay, the overwhelming evidence. He begins the passage with a simple question. If God is for us, who 
can be against us. Now, the idea and the implication, of course, is that there will be those who do come against us from time to time. And every Christian knows this. Certainly, the devil is against us. Satan is against us. He is the accuser of the saints. Think about what the Bible says. Just some examples. Job chapter 1. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Did you know that the devil has a big target on your back? I mean, if you're a child of God, you can absolutely believe that the devil has a big target on your back. Think again of Luke chapter 22. Look at this. Talking, uh, the conversation between Jesus and, and Simon Peter. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The devil is coming after God's people in opposition and accusation. In fact, that's one of his names. Look in Revelation chapter 12. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, uh, traditionally the translation is for the accuser of the brethren. That's the devil. That's Satan has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Night and day, day and night, the devil is accusing you before God, whether you realize it or not. Really, the best translation of that question, if God is for us, who can be against us, really should be translated, if God is for us, who can prevail against us? And the answer is nobody. They'll bring challenges. They'll bring accusations. The devil will accuse you, but he cannot prevail. Or maybe we just say, Try that in a small town, devil. Right? Now, those of y'all who didn't get that, go check your Instagram, okay? <laughs> hey, but it's not just the devil. It's the critics. You have critics? Of course you do. I have critics, yes. Believe it or not, not everybody loves Phil Kramer, okay? I have my critics. Look at the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then you might be surprised to see Jesus saying this, but check this out in John 16. Jesus said, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Did you know the day is coming? And of course, in many places in the world, the day has already come where people kill Christians and they think they're doing God a wild favor. That's the opposition we face. And yet what we see in the Bible is that no matter what opposition comes against us, no matter what accusation comes against us, whatever comes against us by any way, it's not going to stick, certainly in God's court. And what's going to happen here is is we're going to see Paul unpacking this with some legal language. So let's all become paralegals this morning, okay? And I want you to think about this overwhelming evidence. First of all, we have a privileged relationship with the judge. Did you know that? You have a privileged relationship with As a child of God, if you've been saved, if you've been born again, you have a privileged relationship with the judge. Now, we all know that God sent Jesus to this this world because of his tremendous love for us. John 3.16, Romans 5.8, I could go on and on. But we we have this privileged relationship with the judge. I like what uh, Octavius Winslow said, a, a pastor from many years ago. Who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for the money. 
Not Pilate for the fear, not the Jews for the envy, but the Father for the love. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, Jesus was, was the demonstration of God's love for us, and God gave his Son for us. I mean, what, what more does he need to demonstrate, right? Now, let's, let's think about it this way. Let's think about it in, in plain language, okay? And I know everyone's got different opinions on Disney, but let's just say there's a guy that wants to take his family down to Disney World. We are going, family. We're going to have a great time. I can't wait to have y'all just enjoy and have a, have a wonderful vacation. And so he lays down a few thousand bucks on plane tickets. He lays down a few more thousand bucks on hotel rooms and then park tickets, rental car, all of this. I mean, he's, he's just pushing all the chips across the table, as it were. They fly down there, they get out of the Orlando airport, get in their rental car, and they drive to Disney. Man, this is going to be a great, great time. And he comes up to the, the booth there at the parking lot at the, at the Disney World, and the parking attendant said, that'll be $25, please, for a parking space. Now, what, what dad is going to say, 25 bucks? I ain't paying that. That's outrageous. We're out of here. We're going back to Illinois, or whatever. Right? Nobody's going to say, why? Because he's, all, I mean, he's already made the big expenditures, 25 bucks, that's nothing. What's the point, Phil? You obviously see the argument playing out in Scripture. If God didn't withhold his own son from us, I mean, what? all these other little things that are coming against us, what, how, how does that compare to him giving his son for us, right? See, tr- truth be told, I mean, if God's paid the big bill, everything else is a piece of cake. 2 Corinthians 1.20, look at this. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Everything else is a piece of cake. So, yes, we have a privileged relationship with the judge. The judge is crazy about us, all right? That's pretty good standing when you step into a courtroom, is it not? Right? But here's the second thing. I want you also to consider the summary judgment on our case, all right? The summary judgment on our case. Now, when you think about God is the judge, he's got to make a decision, right? Every judge, I mean, that's kind of what they do. They, they get paid the big bucks to make big decisions. And this judge has to make a decision. Now, normally when you go to court, let's say you have a civil suit against someone else, both parties lawyer up, they get their lawyers, both lawyers get all their evidence, and they present their findings to the judge. Maybe there's a jury or, or what, however the court is, is working that time. And the judge has to consider all the evidence of both sides. And normally it's kind of like, okay, I can see some merit here. I can see some merit here. That, that, again, that's why they make the big bucks. They've got to kind of decide between the two. But occasionally, <clears throat> the evidence is so overwhelmingly lopsided for one party over and against the other. And it's so blatantly obvious that this party over here is in the right and this party over here is in the wrong. The judge will just give a ruling called a summary judgment. And that's where the judge just says, we don't have to even go to trial. We don't even have to go to court. I mean, this is, a, this is an open and closed case. I rule in favor of this party over here, right? No jury necessary. We don't, I mean, just it's so lopsided. Now, lawyers will tell you that's probably less than 10%, way less than 10% of all the cases would be a summary judgment. Because you have to have such overwhelming lopsided evidence in favor of one party over the other. How many of you know that the case against us that the devil brings and our critics bring and all the opposition brings is a summary judgment on our behalf. How many of y'all know that? That the evidence in our favor 
is so overwhelmingly lopsided. You say, How do, why do you say that, Phil? John chapter 19, look at this. Jesus is on the cross, and he's about to die. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the, the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, meaning that's when he died. Now I got news for you. Jesus did not say it is finished because he sucked all the, all the wine out of that sponge. Okay, That's not why he said it is finished. This was a legal term back in those days. So that if you had a debt to society, if a judge, a court, whomever, said you have a debt to society, you're going to have to pay that debt, whether it's on the rock pile or in jail or, or however you're going to pay that debt. And once you have, you have fulfilled paying that debt, if it takes a year, 10 years, 50 years, whatever, the judge would, would give a certificate to you with the, with the word that was basically translated, it is finished, paid in full. That was the exact word that Jesus used on the cross. Right before Jesus died, he was able to say, I have paid the debt that was owed by all of humanity. Now, it, I mean, is, is, is that not an amazing thing in terms, <laughs> in terms of a case that could be held against us? That's why there's a summary judgment. Because it's, no, no matter what the devil could bring against us, no matter what the world could bring against us, and opposition and critics and all the rest, Jesus died for us. What more do we need? Right? What more do we need? It, it, it's a summary judgment. But here's the third thing. I want you to consider the tremendous conflict of interest between our judge and our lawyer. All right? Now, of course, God, God the Father is the judge, right? Who's our lawyer? We got the best lawyer in the world. He ain't Johnny Cochran. <laughs> it's Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is our, is our lawyer, and guess what? His daddy is the judge. Now, is that a conflict of interest? Well, maybe in a court in Garland County it might be. But guess what? In heaven's courtroom, God has no problem with it. Jesus has no problem with it. I have no problem with it. You probably have no problem with it either, right? As a matter of fact, our lawyer has the judge on speed dial. That's what the Bible says. Our lawyer has, has the judge on speed dial, and he's calling him up every single day saying, hey, judge, you're going to take care of my client, right? It's like, don't worry about it. I've already settled the case. Nobody, nobody can bring a charge into my courtroom against your client that's going to stick to the wall. It will not happen. You say, how do you know our lawyer has the judge on speed dial? Hebrews 7, verse 25. I mean, Romans 8 already says Jesus intercedes for us. Watch this. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is a massive conflict of interest in worldly terms, but God doesn't care. He loves us, and there's nothing that can prevail against us as the children of God. So that's the first thing I want you to see, this overwhelming evidence that if God is for us, who can prevail against us? The answer is nobody. Here's the second thing I want you to see from Romans chapter 8, the inseparable union, our inseparable union with Jesus. Okay, verses 35 to 37. This begins with another question in verse 35, right? What can separate us? Some translations say who, but we're talking now about circumstances and things, and so the right question is, what could possibly separate us from the love of God in Christ 
Jesus. And then, of course, he lists all kinds of negative circumstances that could come into our lives. Uh, Sword, famine, you name it. Just boom, 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 boom. All down the list. Now, this tells us a couple important things. First of all, it reminds us that Christian people will face challenging circumstances. Okay? There's, there's There's a philosophy and a teaching out there that says, you know what, if you just live right, and you do right, and you believe the right things, nothing bad will happen to you. I think not only is that a lie, it's not in the Bible, I think it's straight out of hell, okay? Because that's not what we see in the Scripture, and it's certainly not what we see in reality in our own lives as well. So yes, bad things are going to happen to Christian people. By the way, that's why Paul, in Romans chapter 8, quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. What he's saying is, this has been going on for a long time, y'all. God's people have suffered throughout the ages. So don't think that you're not going to face some challenges in this life as well. And if there's anyone who had his PhD on challenges, it was Paul the Apostle. You know, again, this guy, he had more lives than a cat. Listen to what he said about his own circumstances and trials in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. There was a law that basically said you couldn't beat a guy 40 times so they would beat him 39 times just to be compliant with the law. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold, and exposure. Paul could easily say, been there, done that, I got a t-shirt, bro. This is a challenge that I faced, and yet it has never, ever driven a wedge between me and the love of God in Jesus Christ. Understand this, every single one of us, as a follower of, of Jesus, from day to day, our mileage may vary. Isn't that right? Think about Hebrews chapter 11. You talk about the ups and the downs of the Christian life. Listen to this. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and Barak, and Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead back their dead by resurrection. Now, if that was the extent of the Christian life, sign me up, right? I mean, man, I can't wait to get in on some of that. And yet, immediately after that verse, watch this. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. By the way, tradition tells us that the prophet Isaiah, they actually cut him in half with a saw. That's what that's referencing. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I will tell you, if if, if you're going to move forward in this life, you need to have a healthy theology of pain and suffering. And understand that it will come in the lives of God's people, but no matter what happens, it cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. Now, here's the other thing we need to do. This is important. Watch this. 
Super important. Viewing those circumstances through God's truth makes all the difference. Now, when bad things come in your life, and guess what? I didn't say if. I said when bad things come in your life, you got two options. Only two options. You can either view God through those circumstances, or you can view those circumstances through God. There's, there's no third option. One of the two. And, and as Warren Wearsby, a pastor from Chicago from years ago, said, watch this. If you view God through your circumstances, you will eventually come to the conclusion that God does not love you. Right? Because you're going to see all these things happening, and if, you, and if you assess God and who He is based on all the stuff that's going on in your life, you will eventually come to the conclusion that God does not love you. But if, if, you view those circumstances through the understanding that our good God in His divine sovereignty infuses everything with His good purpose. And if you view those circumstances with the understanding that Jesus Christ is interceding for you every single day in and day out, and if you view those circumstances through the understanding that God's amazing grace is for you, then verse 37 becomes a reality in your life when you can say we are more than conquerors through him who loved us how many of you know that you're more than a conqueror in jesus christ just lift your hand that's right we we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so that no devil no demon no calamity no critic no disaster no despair can ever separate us from the love of god in christ Jesus. We have an inseparable union with Jesus Christ. But here's the third thing I want you to see. The third thing in verses 38 and 39 is this, the unshakable truth. The unshakable truth. Now let's go back and remind ourselves what these verses say. Because this is how he kind of wraps it up and puts a bow on Romans chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, he's laying out this laundry list of all of these challenges that we could be facing, all of these points and, and origins of opposition and, and all of it. Let me, let me touch on three real quick. Three that I think all of us deal with and struggle with from time to time. Those three are death, rulers, and things to come. Okay, let's, let's think about death for just a moment. By the way, uh, the, the word in, in the original language that's translated death is the word thanatos. Uh, for all you Marvel fans in the Marvel universe out there in the movies, this is where this guy gets his name from, Thanos or Thanos, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, th th this is kind of like the arch bad guy in the Marvel universe. Uh, same, same root word for death. And so it shouldn't surprise us that he lists death in this passage in Romans chapter 8. After all, I mean, the latest statistic is this, that one out of every one people die, right? Maybe, maybe you weren't aware of that. One out of every one people dies. That's been going on since the creation of the world, right? And the fact is, even the Bible affirms that. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, look at this. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, we've often said that there's only two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. Well, if, if taxes are not pleasant and distasteful, 
death is something that, that absolutely paralyzes some people in fear. Even, even a lot of God's people, let's just face it, a lot of Christian people are, are paralyzed with fear of dying. It's not that they even wonder if they're going to heaven or not, but they're still just afraid of dying. Right? Again, the Bible talks, all this stuff is in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 2, these two verses, I love these, look at this. Through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The Bible says that the fear of death is like slavery. And Jesus sets us free from that. Now, if there was anybody that could talk about death, it was, it was Paul the Apostle. Because again, he faced death many, many times. And I have no doubt that there were many days when Paul woke up in the morning, and not in a morbid way per se, but he started his day by saying, today could be the day. I mean, today could be the day that I die and I step on into glory and I'm, I'm in the presence of Jesus. Today could be the day. That's why Paul the Apostle was a massive proponent of, of what we call the doctrine of assurance. The doctrine of assurance is basically a, a certainty, an absolute certainty that at the point of death, we're going to step into heaven and in the presence of Jesus. I've shared this with you many times before, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, look at this. Same guy wrote, same guy that wrote Romans wrote 2 Corinthians. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Mark it down. And I will tell you, as I've shared with you before, in Iraq and Afghanistan, every single time I got in the back of a gun truck or on a helicopter going out on a mission with paratroopers and rangers, this verse was on my lips and in my heart. Because there were enough times when I stood over the remains of a deceased soldier in Iraq and Afghanistan knowing full well that could have been me. And to have the Word of God speak so clearly and so, so plainly about, about this assurance that, that we can have in the face of death, I will tell you, I took great comfort even this week being reminded of the fact that death cannot separate me from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ. Do you have that assurance? Do you know with absolute certainty that, that if you were to die today, that you'd be in heaven with, with Christ? I mean, not a hope so, think so, maybe so, but a no so. Do you have that kind of assurance? That's what we're talking about here. He says death is not going to get in the way. But then he also mentions rulers. Now that's interesting. He says angels are rulers. Hmm. Sometimes the word that's translated rulers represents uh, rulers in, 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 in heavenly or hellish places in, in the spiritual realm. And we see that in Ephesians, for example. But then in other places, the word rulers means the more earthly type of rulers, like politicians and kings and, and governors and, 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 and all of these, these types of, of, of officials on the earth. I believe that the word rulers refers to the earthly rulers in this case. Because later on in Romans chapter 8, you see the word powers. And oftentimes the word powers refers to those, those spiritual uh, rulers of wickedness and so forth, right? So he's trying to hit both bases in, in one passage. Well, you say, Pastor Philip, these are earthly rulers like politicians and kings and stuff. How in the world could they possibly get in the way of God's love for me or somehow disrupt the relationship and, and, and the, the joy that I have? Well, I'll tell you, uh, and it comes around every four years, I call it election anxiety, Election anxiety. Now, I truly believe that elections matter, don't you? I believe that elections matter. If you don't think elections matter, just wait around 
until the people who are, who are bent on throwing our religious liberties under the bus for the sake of some other agendas get to the point where, where they're appointing a judicial majority. All right? if, if you don't think elections matter, you will at that point. So elections absolutely matter, but I will tell you this. It is very easy to become too enamored with rulers and, 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 and placing all of our hope. Well, if we can just get certain people elected, and if we can just get the right people elected, boy, we'll have heaven on earth. It's easy to get distracted. It's also easy, quite honestly, to lose our joy when the wicked are in power, right? I mean, isn't that what the Bible says? When the wicked rule, the righteous mourn. And, and in many cases, we have every right to mourn, and we ought to mourn when the wicked are ruling a land. But I will tell you this, at the end of the day, Jesus is king, and ain't nobody going to vote him out of office. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 again. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority, ru could, could say rulers and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And then notice what it says in the book of Revelation. A pronouncement of, of, of fact when Jesus returns, and yet something that's already true even now as I speak. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his, of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I will tell you there's no ruler on the face of this earth that can take away from that. There's no ruler on the face of this earth that can in any way, no matter how wicked or terrible they may be, and I will tell you the rulers that they had in the first century made so many of the leaders in our world today look like choir boys, right? None of, no ruler, no, no, no authority, no, no official can, can somehow separate us from the love of God which we have in Jesus Christ. But here's the other thing he mentions that I want to point out, and that's things to come. Boy, now you talk about something that even gets God's people to freak out a little bit. It's the things to come, right? Have you ever been anxious about the future? Have you ever been anxious about what's going to happen tomorrow or what might or might not happen next week or next year or next decade? Sure, you've been there, I've been there, we've all been there. right? It's very easy to get anxious and worried about stuff in the future. But God says right here, even the stuff that's coming in the future can't drive a wedge between us and the love of God. I mean, that, that's a fact. That's, that, that's, that, that's an unshakable truth. Now let me ask you this. Death, rulers, things to come. What, what's the common denominator between all three of those? Fear. You afraid of something? What, what, what brings you fear? Probably connected with at least some of those things, if not some of the other things listed. Well, what's the relationship? I mean, when we talk about fear, he's wrapping up this passage with all about the love of God, the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. What's the relationship in the Bible between God's love and fear? Well, I'll tell you what it is. Look at this. 2 Timothy chapter 1. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but, a, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And then probably the, the, the most definitive statement of all in the Bible on this topic, 1 John 4, 18, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love. That's a great one to memorize, by the way. Perfect love casts out fear. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. What burdens are you facing? What, what fears do you have? What, what, what fears are you wrestling with right now? 
What are the challenges in your heart? Understand that this amazing, unbelievable, unshakable, unbreakable love, God is for you. We invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer at crossgate.org. Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.